you know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. And welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. We've got an awesome treat for you today. Whether you are a cyclist enthusiast or not, you're probably like, dude, what are you talking about? Well, well, let me tell you exactly what I'm talking about. Greg LeMond revolutionized the sport of cycling. He's one of the most iconic cyclists in history. And Greg is the sole American to clinch the Tour de France. That's right. He's the only one to not only win the ultimate yellow jersey, but to retain it. He did it not once, but three times. Today, Greg takes us on a journey behind the scenes of his life and his career. He's going to celebrate and share some of the highlights of his career and also some of the struggles he faced while riding it. Unveiling his intense rivalries with cycling's finest and how a near-fatal hunting accident reshaped his purpose, both personally and professionally. And I'll be honest with you, my friends, it's a story I did not know before researching this man's life. This is an incredible, incredible overcomer. And yet Greg's quest for greatness extends far beyond his personal triumphs. He is a fierce advocate for the integrity of not only his sport, but all sports. He's a visionary who calls for unyielding anti-doping measures to be taken to make sure the playing field is even not only for the playing field, but for the athletes participating in the sport. My friends, this conversation transcends by far the sport of cycling. Greg is a true champion that has rewritten the boundaries of what it means to be truly great. If you are searching for an upstanding model of courage and of resilience and of integrity and of determination and of overcoming overwhelming odds, this conversation's for you. So here's my encouragement. Grab your favorite yellow jersey. Put it on. It's going to fit just tight. Trust me on that one. Grab your favorite Live Inspired journal, something to write with, something to sip on. You'll need it all because you're in for the ride of a lifetime with my friend and now yours, his name. Greg Lamont. Greg, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Nice to be here, John. 
Well, it's, I feel like we've already been here for a while. You're on the front porch. I'm in my office and we have been hanging out already for almost 30 minutes before I finally say, Greg, I need to do my job and hit record on this thing. If you and I were to randomly bump into each other somewhere and I heard your name and kind of recognized it and say, Greg Lamont, that, that name sounds familiar. Uh, Greg, what do you do? How would you answer that question? Greg Lamont, what do you do? Right now, I am an entrepreneur. I have a bicycle company and I'd say a startup uh, carbon fiber, making carbon fiber business. It's been a rather challenging business, but very excited about the potential. But I'm said I'm a now 61, soon to be 62 entrepreneur that, uh, let's say more startup entrepreneur, which is very stressful. I said, I feel like I've aged 10 years in the last three years, but um, I guess I'm always, I always considered myself an entrepreneur. I mean, I'm always interested in new projects. I was a bike racer back uh, until 94, but I'm no longer that. I'm a little bit heavier. Uh, <laughs> I'm more like a, a bicycle sprinter than a uh, climber, let's just say. So broader shoulders these days, able to yeah, more muscle mass. a little bit, but maybe not climb the, uh, the Alps any longer. The folks may know you a little bit as an entrepreneur. They may know you a little bit as um, a bike leader and rider. They certainly know your story. And one of the things I'm so excited about is they think they know your story and they don't. And so as amazed and impressed as I've always been by what you did on your bike, it's it's your life story, Greg, that I've been blown away by in researching you, man. So I'm going I'm to get off the bike and walk it all the way back down the hill to, to California, June 26, 1961, when you were born in Lakewood, California. Would, would you just talk a little bit about your childhood? Yeah, I was born in Lakewood, California. My parents were blue collar, came from, I think, Lakewood High, high School. My dad and mom got married right out of high school. My dad started lawn mowing company or his own little business and got into real estate, ended up getting a job to move to Lake Tahoe and Klein Village, which was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. I was into Western movies. I dressed in a cowboy hat. That was a period of the 60s with Western movies. So I was always the cowboy, but I always actually favored the Indians. <laughs> I was always in favor, you know, I was kind of eventually switched to, part of it was kind of the myth that we were part Indian. I think that hasn't proven to be true, but I've always been empathetic to the Indians. My dad was into horseback riding in Los Angeles, believe it or not, and into trap shooting, which was a, a sport that my mom and dad did. I said, I came from a family that really didn't follow major sports. And I, my Mom was a really good bowler. My dad was a good trap shooter and both were, but we came from a, a family that really didn't, we didn't know we were athletes. I just remember my childhood as being, I was pretty wild. I'd say I was always yeah, doing adventures underground, under the road system. I remember doing that, lifting manholes in our neighborhood. I also had, you know, I remember having chronic infections, kidney infections from it, the tube between the bladder and the kidney and uh, chronic infections. That's one of the things that I kind of remember is a lot of pain. And then when I was seven years old, we moved, we moved from Garden Grove, California to Incline Village, which was magical. You said that before. You said it's one of the best things that ever happened to me. Why, why was it such a good thing? I would have never been exposed to the outdoors. And, and I remember driving up the eastern part of the Sierra Nevadas and just looking at the mountains going, oh my God, it was stunning. I remember the drive even to this day. And we moved in December of 68 and Incline Village, uh, Sierra Nevadas had a very big snowfall that year. And I think in front of the house my dad bought were eight foot snowbanks. So 
not ever seeing really snow, <laughs> driving up to your house with eight foot snow banks, and then learning to ski within a week that we were there, it opened my life to the outdoors. And I became a huge fan of skiing, but I also wandered to Lake Tahoe, to the mountains. I got into fly fishing, backpacking. Yeah, I, I still look back, I had an incredible childhood where I grew up. And my dad eventually moved from Incline to Washoe Valley between Reno and Carson City. And we had five acres, but our neighbors had, a, a, I think, a 5,000 acre ranch. And we were living on ranch property. So I had access to all that property to wander as a kid. And, and I have the best memories of hiking for two, three days in the Sears, fishing, taking horses in the backcountry. So that was my childhood. Mm. And uh, I love being outdoors. So we live 1.1 miles away from our grade school. And occasionally, whether it's Beth going, my wife going to work early or whatever it is, our kids have to either walk or ride their bike 1.1 miles. And it's agony, man. I mean, this is work <laughs> for these children. And doing a little bit of research on you, I understand you used to ride your bike to high school. How far was that commute? Well, it took an hour and a half in a bus, basically. An hour, hour and 15 minutes. So, I mean, it's 25 miles away. It take me an hour and 15 minutes. My mom was very supportive. I would ride one way. I didn't go back and forth. I got to be honest with my kids. I didn't ride every day there. It wasn't uphill on the way no. to and back. Oh, it's hilly, but 50 miles a day for a 14-year-old now, that was that was too much. But I did ride my bike to high school and once or twice a week, just for training. It was really a purpose of getting the time in on, on a bike. When did it become less around training? Because you were a skier, man. That's what you loved. And then you got on the bike to keep you fit for ski season. When did it become almost the alternative where it was the bike that you were passionate about? I always think of this last year and this year as I think they got 50 to 60 feet of snow. And I, I keep wanting to go out there and be in the Sears when they get that massive storm, all those snowstorms, because I remember those storms and uh, you got two inch diameter snowflakes. But that year that I was got into cycling, my dad, my parents bought a week training camp for my birthday to Wayne Wong's ski camp in Whistler, British Columbia. And I wanted to go there to learn to do flips, aerials. At that training camp in Whistler, they recommend riding a bike to get in shape for skiing. And so I came back and my parents had me usually work for everything we, we got. <laughs> they were generous at Christmas and birthday, but anything else you had to work for it. I always worked mowing lawns, lifting hay for two weeks when they cut hay. Uh, so I earned enough money to buy my Raleigh Grand Prix and my dad bought a bike at the same time. And we started riding the 1st of August of 1975. And I ended up riding through that winter. And I was talking about the big snowstorms this year. That year, there was no snow and no skiing. And so I, in January of 1976, I met somebody at a bike shop who asked if I thought of racing. And I said, nope. And I said, well, give it a thought and invited me to the Reno Wheelman, which was a cycling club in Reno. They talked about a club race, which went in front of our house. Two weeks later, I did that club race and I, there were like 40 guys and I ended up getting second place on an uphill finish and everybody thought, oh my gosh, this guy's got talent. And they encouraged my dad to get me a real bike. And two weeks later, I entered my first official bike race in Sacramento and I ended up winning that and winning my first 11 races. And for a kid that never won anything, um, never thought of racing, it was truly an adrenaline rush. Mm. It was so exciting. So as a kid, were you, were you fearless? And let me, let me back into the question with a little bit more detail. Road racing is a scary sport, man. You're going uphill and that's hard and painful and grueling. You're going flat, but you have riders all around you. And when you're going downhill, you're buzzing. 
it's funny you say fearless because I think fearless to me is like that means crazy. You're taking risk, but or fearless means to me it's always a matter of mastering. You, you don't just go straight into my full speed. If you're a car racer or a downhill skier, you would you slowly train up to that. So it's it seems crazy to an average person, but when you get there, it's from a lot of training and experience. I guess I never thought I because I was a downhill skier, but it didn't translate quite into bike riding. When you go down a mountain, which I had in the Sierra Nevadas, it was a blast. I mean, you're going 60 miles an hour. And I never felt fear at all because I love the sensation. But as I went, you end up going down. You do end up crashing in bike races. That teaches you not to go down. <laughs> you try to go, okay, how do I stay upright? And sometimes you get put back a little bit when you, you know, going down hills and crashing is always kind of like, if it's wet, that's something you can't predict. But I never have felt scared on a downhill in racing at all. I loved it. But I thought it was it was a very good skill that I had. I really had a skill for uh, descending. I guess people would think I'm a risk taker. And I absolutely was an ADD kid. School was torture for me. I mean, just sitting in a classroom, I think when I was painful, when I got in cycling, it improved. And there's a lot of science shows that exercise is about the best thing for ADD kids, but and nobody's really meant to sit in a fluorescent lit room for eight hours a day. Most people should go crazy. But cycling, it was just a short little story that I, I it, it kind of shows. I was like Dennis the Menace, I always thought. I mean, really polite, nice kid, but I had trouble sitting still. And I had a fifth grade teacher. She was a substitute teacher, Mrs. Pagnucci. And I kind of had a, you know, what a fifth grade kid would have a crush on her. And one day I did something I won't say, but I don't know why. <laughs> of course I got in trouble, but then she understood I was a little wild. And about four or five years later, whatever that was, I won the national championships and I was in the Reno newspaper and she ran into me at uh, the 7-Eleven and she came out and she was, Greg, Greg, I'm so happy to see you. I'm so happy about what you're doing. And she's really teared up. She was I'm so glad you found cycling because I really was afraid you'd end up in prison <laughs> <laughs> because kids with ADD, they, you know, I, I, I just, I really had a, a hard time kind of controlling impulses and yeah. mainly sitting still. It was really difficult. And I say that is because I think cycling, that type of personality thrives on outdoor activity. They thrive on adrenaline type sports. And it's, you know, I would say there's probably a lot more ADD people that are in sports than people understand and it's a good outlet for people like me. When did you realize that not only was this thing working in your own backyard and maybe even in Reno, but uh, you might be gifted enough to race around the United States and maybe beyond? Well, what was exciting for, for me is I was always having to work for stuff. I was always working an odd job and all that. And then I won my first race. I got like $300 in prize. You know, it wasn't money, but I remember winning a what they call a prime. I got two dollars in cash and going, wow. And I, I I say that only because it would have been very hard to kind of go, how do you fund this? My parents were very generous. My parents, I mean, it was not like we had any financial hardship at all, but it did help. But it also helped with this idea that I could become independent, where I I literally was making after about the second year, I was making enough money to pay for almost all my expenses. But I would say. I didn't know anything about the, the sport. I got in, I won my first 11 races and my 12th race, a guy who looked at me like he was disgusted and wanted to beat me up in my second race. He ended up getting second place, I won. 
he beat me that day and he finally, I went to congratulate him and he broke the ice and said, you know, Greg, there's, I bought a yellow bike, a yellow Chanelli and a matching Jersey. So I was racing with a yellow Jersey, which is only for the Tour de France. He said, nobody wears that, but the Tour de France. And I said, what's the Tour de France? I didn't even know what that was. So he became a really good friend and I won those 11 races. Then I won the next three or four races. And I really got bored with winning. And I asked permission from the officials if I could race in the next age group from, I was in a 13 and 14, then the 15 to 18 year old age group. And they granted me permission. I didn't win anymore, but I got second a lot of times. I think I got second place in a, a, a mountaintop finish with a sixth place rider in the Olympics when I was a 15 year old kid. And I would have beat <laughs> the guy that was sixth in the Olympics. I go, oh, I, I'm, it was kind of a gradual thing, but also I started realizing I had some, some talent and, and I took really quickly to tactics and strategy. Mm. But the following year, I won pretty much every race that I got into. I would say by the third year, I was invited to go to Europe with that friend who told me I can't wear the yellow jersey. His dad lived in Switzerland. And I went there for two months and won pretty much every race I entered, except for two. Switzerland, Belgium, and France, they took me out everywhere. And I figured the Europeans, Eddie Merckx, Bernard, he know all the best, had to be a junior like me. If I'm beating everybody, and this wasn't small races, if I'm beating all these Europeans, why couldn't I believe that I can go to the Tour de France? And, mm. and it was that year I saw the Tour de France. And in America at that time, there was like, it was kind of a big underground sport, but everybody believed that the Europeans were genetically different from us. And it was always, you can't, no way could America make it. After that year, when I came back, it's kind of crazy, but I was 17 years old, just turned 17. I wrote a list of, of goals, which was, I was, I raced, world championships that year i didn't win i got ninth in a third place and then my goal was the next year win it win the olympics win the world championship professionally and win the tour by the time i'm 25 and believe it or not, i got all those except for the olympics i was very goal oriented i read a lot on training so i became truly passionate about it but i, I say the one thing that people in cycling there's been a lot of controversy of drugs and doping and it's weird i when people talk about there's right races that race against people, like they have to hate them. And I never, I, I raced a race to challenge myself. And I say that when I asked permission to race out of my age group, it wasn't just about victories. It was about challenging myself. And to me, doping would have been about cheating myself. It was never about pure victories. It was mm. about how I want to know how I really, even if everybody else was doping to me, it was cheating. And it was always about, challenging myself and being my best. I mean, I'm fortunate that I was never faced with not being such a talent because athletes have all egos and they always believe they're as good as the next guy. And if the next guy is better than them, they believe they, they've got to be doing something illegal or something else that they're not doing. And that's, that's the vicious cycle in, in sports. They all believe they're as good as everybody else. You shared that you came home from Europe that summer and, and came up with a list of four goals. You achieved three of the four. And the fourth one you did not because the entire country that you would have represented did not participate in the 1980s Olympics. So I think you, you have a little bit of grace on that one. What you left out is you also probably did not have a goal, but it became a reality of, of finding a sweetheart, falling in love and marrying oh. Talk, talk about Kathy. I mean, listen, you're a young athlete. You're traveling the world. You're a good-looking guy. Success is ahead of you. Everybody knows it. What was it about Kathy that you realized, man, uh, she's the one? I met my wife, Kathy. 
who I'd heard about and knew a matter of a year before, we ended up meeting and going out kind of just to get to know each other in a race in Colorado for 10 days. I fell madly in love with her and we're still been married 43 years and she is the best person you could ever meet. I mean, everybody says that, but truly she's, I mean, everybody I, everybody I know, Greg, you're so lucky to have your wife. I am. <laughs> it's been a magical, magical marriage. And I think I had an incredible mother and father-in-law that were treating me like their own kid. But anyways, I, I come back from Belgium. I'm not, I'm not going to get married till I'm 25. That's what I told myself. Then I met Kathy and six months later, we're like, I love you so much. We got engaged. And then the following year, 1980, as we're heading up to the Olympics, I ended up winning a race against the East Germans. Not the Russians were at that race, but all the very best and professionals, guys who were third place in the Tour de France. And I had an offer to, as an 18 years old. Yeah, I was 18 years old. I offered to turn pro by the biggest pro team at the time, Renault, and it had Bernard Hino on it. And it was my dream. But that meant I was going to turn pro and go the following year in 1981 to Europe. And I was engaged with my wife. And there was no time set for marriage. She was in college and I just graduated, but she's a year and a half older than me. So I just graduated high school and, and she's still in college. And her parents, of course, her dad's a doctor and his, her mom's an English teacher and, 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 and bicycle, bicycle racer at 18 years old. After that race, we talked and said, I can't live without you. And I'm not going to move to Europe without you. And so we basically decided to get married the month before I left to Europe. And I had to go ask her parents if they could, I could marry uh, their daughter. I talked to the mother first, Seisha. She said, don't talk to my dad about it. I'll talk to him. So they said no initially, but we eventually became the best parents, best mother and father-in-law. It was really exciting for me to be madly in love with the woman that I'm still together with. And I think our values aligned uh, a lot. We complimented each other. I mean, I'm the, kind of the wild one. She's a, a stable one. <laughs> so, but we moved to Europe in 81. And I look at my career it's, as an individual going to Europe. It wasn't like today with no internet. I mean, no internet connection. It's four bucks a minute on a phone call to the US. It was six bucks a gallon uh, for gas in Europe at that time. And I made $12,000 in salary. Uh, they did give me an apartment. So we, my wife, lived for months in an unfurnished house while I was racing so that but it's really interesting all those memories all those kind of what called early professional struggles really I was a really it took a team and my wife was really like my real partner in, in yeah. getting through everything and, and she still is I mean we do everything together we talk about everything from business to everything so I was lucky I was very lucky and I think she was too. And it's a beautiful love story that led you over to Europe. And we could talk about some of the races that you were in and some that you were successful in. The one that I think is most famous for the majority of our listeners is the Tour de France. For the folks who may have recognized those words, but have really no background on what that race really is, would you explain what is the Tour de France? Well, the Tour de France is a three-week race in France. It is the largest cycling event in the world. Probably one of the largest sporting events in the world. Every year, the course changes. It's 21 days. And I always try to have people think of the Tour de France as a long golfing tournament. I mean, imagine if you had the Masters and at the end of the day, you had the lowest score. You took on the green jacket. The next day, if you still led, you keep that on. The yellow jersey signifies the racer with the lowest overall time. And each day that he, the leaders and the, the lead with the lowest overall time is the leader of the Tour de France. But what people don't know it is a absolute team sport 
you can't race the Tour de France, you can't race professionally without a team, and you work intimately with a team. Riders make a lot of sacrifice for their own careers so that a guy like me can win the Tour de France. At the same time, they're racing through all through the year. On average, I spent about 100 days racing races. The Tour de France would take up 21 days. I did the Tour of Italy, another 21 days, but I was gone probably 200 days a year racing. But the Tour de France is where everybody's at their best. I said it's usually teams at the time, 10 people. Right now it's eight people. So every time you finish in a group, everybody has the same time because it's hard to separate out the times. But when you get to a mountain stage, that's where you do all the attacks. That's where you try to separate yourself from the competition. So you're really trying to distance yourself from your competitors. And there's a few places to do that. It's in the mountains or in a time trial, which is race, racing by yourself, or if it's windy, if there's a break, but your, your team is there to protect you. If you got a flat, they call it controlling the, controlling the Peloton. If your competitor ends up breaking away, you hope they have a, a few teammates that can keep you pacing to get back to them. And what is really important about cycling is drafting. The aerodynamics is very important, but the thing that's really a neutralizer and it creates an exciting sport is the fact that you can draft. That means you don't have to be as talented as say me, if you're tactically smart, I could try to break away, but somebody could be sitting on me and they're saving about 30% energy. In the Peloton, the group, it could be up to 70% energy savings. Oh my gosh. So it creates a very strategic race. It's very tactical. And I, people go, how did you race three weeks? There's not a dull minute when you're racing because imagine, I call it efforts of a marathon every day, but car racing every day on open roads because that's what the feeling is. And I think there's a, a Netflix show right now that highlights the Tour de France. There is not another sport that comes close to the challenge of strategy, tactics, physical suffering and pain from you actually end up crashing in at least five or six times a year, but you're always overcoming obstacles. I always look at the Tour de France, no matter what, it's kind of like a, a mini drama series because it's, it's always unpredictable. Mm. One more thing I want to ask about the tour before I get into specifics of at least one of your races within the tour. Uh, you mentioned on the front side of the, the explanation that it's similar to golf. Imagine playing the Masters for 21 consecutive days or for three consecutive weeks. And so now people like my mother listening are thinking, gosh, that sounds hard, which it would be. But yep. then imagine the terrain that you're on. So would you describe for our listeners what the terrain that you're riding on is like? It's the most beautiful terrain. I mean, France has some of the best roads and gorgeous countryside, but it is a lot of times on very, let's say there's flat stages, very narrow roads to wide roads through cities. Some of the most dangerous parts of the race are at the finish of a flat stage. Because of the drafting, you have everybody trying to get to the front to win the stage. And it, you can have 200 riders crowding themselves into a 30 foot wide road. And you are literally doing 40 miles an hour, touching elbows and, and shoulders. The mountain stages are probably the most famous stages. And typically a hard mountain stage will have three or four climbs of about 3,000 feet. And those 3,000 feet take about 45 minutes to climb. Mm -hmm. And what's really hard about the tour is that it's three weeks long. And in that three weeks, you go through different phases of, of recovery. Like some days you can have a really good day. Some days you can have a bad day. So in order to win the tour, the guy who's going to win the tour has to have the least amount of bad days. But what you do have are days where your competitors 
could be better than you. And that's what really creates the challenge because there's always going to be a day that you're not as good as your competitors. And it's trying to respond to that. And usually those are in the mountains. I don't know how to explain the Alps or the Pyrenees until you go there, but they're the most beautiful climbs. Most climbs in the United States and Colorado, Sierra Nevadas are built for snow removal. They're maximum 6% grade, very wide. These go from eight to 12 to 50% grades with very steep pitches. It's not just like a steady state. It's very up and down efforts. And one thing in cycling, it's the explosiveness. It's an endurance sport where you can go from a, a very slow speed to a massive attack where you're, you're having to go to your maximum. Like imagine if you're a runner, but, and you're doing the Tour de France for three weeks, but you had to do a hundred meter sprint, a 400 meter, 1500, 10K, 5K, and a marathon every, every day sometimes. The thing about a bike, what is different than running, a bike supports, you don't have the damage that running does to your body. So you're able to do a lot of effort energy-wise compared to running. It's just the nature of the bike. That's the beauty of the bike. That's why people who are totally out of shape can use the bike to get in really great shape because it supports your weight. But at the same time, that allows you to do some incredible efforts over three weeks. On your bad days, because the good days, you know, the analogy is back to human life, but we'll, we'll get back on the bike and you can draw it forward with us. On your bad days, what keeps you going? When you woke up and you're like, my gosh, I have nothing today, but I've got to get on my helmet. I've got to get out there and I do, I've got to do my thing. What, what was it that you would say to yourself or do? What was the process for making sure you had the best day possible? I truly believe I was as talented as anybody. So I figured if I'm suffering, somebody else is suffering. But on the bad days, there's a lot of bluffing. But I would have to say my first Tour de France, I started with a like a bronchitis and I was on antibiotics. And it was truly one of the most difficult tours I've ever had. It actually so difficult for me that it caused me to race the following year so conservatively because I was waiting for it to be that hard. Believe it or not, in, in a sport, when you get even a little cold, it really, really impacts you. But that was a race that I, you know, you depend on your team and you know that over a three-week period, your body goes through different changes. And, and it is kind of my one thing. It's like perseverance. I think that did help me realize that no matter how bad it is today, it's, it will get better. The funny thing is when I was healthy in 85 and 86, honestly, I didn't have a bad day. Hmm. And what I, I know is, and it's, it's, it's a magical and that's what it takes to win, but it was quite easy for me uh, at the time. I, it was more psychological in 86. I was competing against my own teammate. That was a psychological battle, which was, wasn't fun. But following year after I won my first tour, I was shot in a hunting accident. And I spent two years, really, that was the most challenging part of my career, where I went from winning the tour to being one of the worst riders in the peloton. And that's what really took... Um, I don't know how I did it sometimes. I go, yeah. I, how, how did I have the patience? I almost ran out of patience at one point, a couple of years into the recovery process. In one sentence, you said, that's when I won my first tour. And later that year, I was shot in a hunting accident. So there's, there's a lot that you shared right there. So Greg Lamont wins the 1986 Tour de France. It's a huge deal. Only American to win a Tour de France. So congratulations on that. You come home on top of the world, but you'd been racing against your teammate. So a guy who's supposed to be pulling you along and helping you out ends up turning this back on you. And you know, no one in Europe wants you to win. This is not a very healthy time for you, but you end up winning regardless, in spite of all the headwind faced. You come home, 
And it's my understanding it's the day after Easter. You're out on a Monday, just kind of hanging out with your family and you decide to go turkey hunting. Well, to go before that, because in 85, I was the best rider and I ended up waiting for my teammate, Bernard, you know, who was dropped at a very, the last mountain stage, I was four or five minutes up on him. I probably would have won by three minutes uh, that tour, but I was a loyal teammate, <laughs> but he was not involved in this. It was the director that was, it wasn't honest with me. So at the end of that tour, Bernardino promised he'd work for me the next year. Then he became quite strong, probably the strongest he's ever been in the tour. Again, the, the team owner and the director manipulated him really to just, you know, screw, you're going to go for your sixth tour, screw the American. That's really the attitude. The only thing I'm always happy about is I, I beat Bernardino at, at probably one of his best tours. At the same time, everybody said he gave it to me. He said I gave it to me and it was furthest thing from the truth. And yes. to be honest, I went home and it was a big letdown after winning that tour. It was, wasn't like I had hoped to be. It didn't, I didn't get the, it's not that I, I just wanted to be recognized by my team actually for what I went through. And uh, I know what I did, but publicly and all that, it was like, I, I didn't really win the tour like a normal tour winner. I had the advantage of a really strong team and it was the opposite where I was literally fighting against my team. It's, and it's very hard to explain to the average person, but I don't know another sport where I can compare it where, you have your team competing against you, trying to make you fail, but you yeah. still persevere over them. So when I got done with that tour, I was really kind of down. And, and that year I didn't train like I probably normally would have. I came into the season, not in great shape. And I broke my hand in a crash. That's when you're not in the front of a race, it's the dead zone. And that's what happens when you're not in great shape, you get yourself into accidents. And I came home to recover from that. And I was invited to go turkey hunting by my uncle who had a, a farm, uh, ranch farm, whatever you want to ca call it outside of Sacramento. I'd never really been turkey hunting, but we did go out with my brother-in-law, my uncle and camouflage. And my brother-in-law accidentally shot me, basically shot at the first thing moving the way I was sitting in two bushes in front of a raspberry bush. He just saw movement and shot. I almost died that day. I still have 50 pellets in me. I still think that I was diagnosed last year with leukemia. And I think that was the cause of the lead, lead in me, lead poisoning. But um, yeah, I went from winning the tour and, and I getting shot. I lost probably, I was 148 pounds. I went down to 118 pounds, lost all my muscle mass. 70% of my blood volume, my right lung had collapsed. And then I was fired from my team that year. So I had no team to get back. On. So I had, a, I had the worst part. I had to fake that it was nothing. I had to tell everybody yeah. oh, I was a minor, a minor accident, and I came back four months later, pretending I was all in good shape. And I uh, just so I had the only team that would take me. I had to prove that I could race that year, and I showed up and in a couple races and claimed I had mechanicals. And you know I made it one mile in the first race I went to. That was a very difficult period because I couldn't be. But I, I wish I could have been totally honest publicly that I needed time to recover. I needed time to build up. You're so candid. Your, your whole life is based on, on truth. Like, be, hey, this is the truth. I'm going to be honest about this. You'd been shot. You had 100 pellets in your back. Every single organ had been damaged and sliced through by these pellets. You had 40 or 50 still in your body, three in your heart, a dozen in your lungs. Your wife had almost miscarried, went into delivery early like it's all off the it was rails. chaotic let's say it, it really disrupted the family why can't why can't you say hey guys like i i need time here like this is this is a really because this the, the nature of sport and in cycling nobody's really come back through it from a truly major traumatic event i mean mine was 
the most severe thing that's ever happened in cycling. So immediately people said I was over, done. And and our team did. I mean, that's what, let's just say, had I told them really what was happening. One of the things that happened, I mean, three months after I got shot, I, I had to go into another surgery and I had an intestinal block. And intestinal block is where your intestines caught onto the a scar tissue. I had a big nine inch incision on my my stomach for the doctors to see what was bleeding in, internally. As I'm going under, the, the surgeon said, oh yeah, I had a guy in here. He had 10 or 15 surgeries the year before for intestinal block, but we might have a new stitch that could prevent that. And I thought at the last minute, this is when I'm under massive amount of pains under morphine. I said, hey, can you take my appendix out? And I'm already thinking about the press the next day. <laughs> so when I came out of surgery, I just mounted, you know, because it got out in the news. Yeah, I had my appendix out. I didn't tell him really when I realized if somebody who was a doctor and knew that what an intestinal block would would be with a, a scar tissue, they'd never hire me. So I came out and said I had my appendix removed. I'm fine. And it was difficult because I set myself up to expectations that weren't realistic. And then as I didn't race well, everybody said I was lazy. I'd made money. I didn't care about the sport. I mean, I've had people laughing at me. Psychologically, that was the most difficult because I, I went from really the best athlete in the world at that time to one of the worst. And I had teams like, they'd, I'd be dropped and they, they the coaches would laugh like, oh, there's Lamond. And it was two years of patience. And sometimes I don't know how I did it. Two years later, the Tour de France, there was a, a French newspaper that referred to that tour in 1989 as the most astonishing victory in Tour de France history. And I happen to be on a podcast right now with the recipient <laughs> of that praise. I think it, it was exciting because I won by eight seconds, but I think hopefully there was, a. but even still, I don't think it was my best achievement, even though I think I won the tour. I was much better shape in 86, but four weeks before the Tour de France started, I was, I did crack. I cracked in the Tour of Italy, which is the same type of race as Tour de France. And I had lost eight minutes the second day. I lost 21 minutes in an, another mountain stage. and. And I just told my wife, I can't do this anymore. The irony is I was so like pure, pure purist that I never had an injection at all. And I had lost 70% of my blood volume. And I'd always felt like a struggling breathing wise, but it turns out I, I was anemic and we did a blood test there. I do think that was the, the tipping point for me that I had been racing as with a, like a, the brakes on. But fortunately, I it was almost like I had a pressure release when my wife said, it's okay, you can quit, but just don't quit till the end of the end of the year, because every race for me was, uh, will I make it or not? And every race that I wouldn't make it, I was going to be done. And so when you race that many times in a year, <laughs> that's a lot of negative thought process yes. that keeps going. You're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. And at one point you crack, especially when you're getting close to the Tour de France. Um, but I broke down and honestly, I, I, it was part psychological, probably iron help. But uh, by the end of that race, I ended up feeling so much better. I ended up getting second place in the last time trial. And that was my first glimmer of hope. And I'm going, wow. And the guy that I beaten six weeks later in the Tour de France, Laurent Fignon, won that race. And I beat him by almost a minute and 21 seconds in the last time trial, the Travidly. And that was my first result since 1986. And that was 1980, end of May of 1989. And so that was my first glimmer of hope that I had something. But still, winning the Tour de France was way off in my mind at that point. I was just hoping to get into the Tour. What, 
you got into the tour. The goal was to finish the, the race. You finished the race in first. And I love the fact that on the second to last day, you're a one to 100 odds at best chance of winning. It, like there's no chance the, the the guy in the lead has the lead and he's not going to give it up. And he goes over to you, shakes your hand and congratulates you on finishing second. How'd you feel having uh, the guy shake your hand and say, Hey, congratulations ahead of time on finishing second. Well, honestly, I said, you've lost it. I said, right there, you've, I knew he was going to lose the tour because there was a, a, a questionnaire kind of interview with 20 experts in cycling. And one other person said, I think Greg could do it. And I was the, the second person, <laughs> but I wasn't like just hopeful. I had beaten Laurent Fignon in the Tour of Italy. I said six weeks before, and I had all the same equipment as he did by a minute and 21 seconds. I figured Mano mano, they call it man, man against man, uh, same equipment. I would be within four or five seconds of, of victory, but I had a technical advantage. I had a, a new triathlon bar that helped in your aerodynamics. He did too. But the irony is we had the same team. We were teammates uh, when I was at Renault and we had the same coach, Cyril Guimard. And the first thing he taught me is never give up. The second, and the second thing was the race is never over till it's over. And I could tell you, I've won a lot of races where I just pushed it till the end where I sometimes thought the race was over and, but I knew that things can change in a race. And when he said that, I knew he was going to lose because he got cocky and, and the time trial, that time trial, the, the last stage of the tour was very short, 16 miles. If you took it slow at the beginning and I took it flat out, I could make up 20, 30 seconds. And I figured I had, I would win it anyways by four or five seconds. And I ended up winning by eight seconds. I do believe he lost it because of his cockiness. <laughs> so I said it's, and the irony is that the same coach was the leader in aerodynamics and he had the bar and uh, this tri bar that improved your position. And they said, now nah, it's going to hurt the breathing. And I do believe, I'm going to say this, I think if he had it, he probably would have won. But the truth is cycling is not about just pure People are attracted to sport, also like mechanics or engineers. It's the beauty of man and machine. And what I loved about cycling was your positioning aerodynamics was as important as your physical ability. So you had to, it's all those things that have to come together. And I look at it was, he probably would have, if he would have been more open, but he got so cocky. Let's just say when people get too cocky, they get too confident. I think it's when you're, you're, you're most vulnerable and yes. the best reason I've ever had is when I'm very nervous about things where I think of what could potentially go wrong, but hyper-focused and the days that I've had been so confident, I raced, I don't race smart. I don't race strategically. I waste a lot of energy and, but I knew I was, I, I really did believe I was going to, when he said that he was done and it turned to be right, turned out to be right. My favorite shot is you and your wife at the finish line, both weeping, uh, just in pure joy. You'd won the tour a few years earlier, healthy. You were not super healthy. You had 40 lead pellets still in your body. You were behind in the second to last time trial. And you came back and against overwhelming odds, you're victorious. It's a, it's a beautiful story. You win the following year again. You race for the next several years. And in 1994, finally retire. When did you realize that doping was a major problem with the sport? It's interesting you said that about Kathy and I overjoyed it was the victory but was really it was about what what we've been through the two years before and then we just said can you imagine i was almost 
I was going to give it up six weeks before. And we, right. we were literally high, like literally went back. Can you believe I was ready to stop and I won the tour? But what's funny is that following year 1990, I, that winter I got mono and I really, I, I didn't know what I had. And it took, I took months off and I finally got healthy in May. I, I felt better by May of that year. And I, I ended up, you know, being about at 90%. I ended up winning the Tour de France. There was no Fignon there. There was no, you know, real challenges. And it was, I couldn't believe how, and I had a good team. And I could not believe how easy it was to win the Tour. Truly, it was like the easiest Tour I've ever had. And I wasn't even, I was at 90%, 95%. And the following year, I prepared, the, I think I was at the best shape I was since 1986. I, I didn't have... Right now, you have things that measure your power output. I didn't have it at that time. I did shortly after. But I had ways to gauge my performance, and I was riding as well as I was in 86, which in 89, I was not even close to my 86 performance. And I ended up taking the lead in the tour that year. I ended up, I thought I was going to win this thing breathing through my nose. And the speeds were so fast every day. And typically in the Tour de France, everybody still is somewhat, they're world-class athletes, and you could race flat out for three, four days. It's typically the day. And then on the fifth or sixth day, there's a general sense of fatigue in the Peloton. So everybody's kind of going, oh, we're all tired. Let's take a little bit easier th uh, this day. That never happened, not once in that tour. And I ended up just riding at my max and ended up getting seventh place that year. And the speeds were so dramatically different. And it, that's probably the first year, only looking back years later, that I go, oh, that's why I couldn't win as because I, I I was eight within eight seconds of a of the winner that year, Miguel Indran in a 40 mile time trial. I was at the top of my game. I was so much better than 89 or 90. And so it was and people athletes don't improve in one or two years. They just don't. It's over a long period. Usually when you race for 14 years, you have a, either a slow gradual Yep. decline of a really great rider but rarely does that happen and, and in the 90s it went from the same riders even Finian, myself riders who were dominating all of a sudden we couldn't even compete and everybody was talking about oh it was weight loss it was this it was that then it was epo <laughs> and it was it and also 1990 i think it's 1990-91 a team that i was on and right after i got shot a rider named johannes dreyer who's married to an american woman and my wife got a call at three in the morning from the wife and she woke up to her husband was dead, died of a heart attack. We can't say it was EPO, but most likely something like that. I don't want, think she wants to admit it, but it's not normal for an athlete, a cyclist to die of a heart attack. It never happened in cycling for years. And then all of a sudden the nineties riders were dying of heart attacks, but it went from myself being a dominant rider to where I could barely keep up. Uh, when you have a Peloton, or the group in the Tour de France racing at a high speed every single day with a 10% boost, I depended on my own natural talent to give me that edge. And, you know, on days that everybody was tired, I could recover. Uh, at one point, you just, nobody could recover that was clean. And mm -hmm. so it was by 92, 93 is when I really realized there was a major problem. But I still didn't look at it at that time. I did not look at, oh, I'm not performing because of, Others are doping. It probably didn't become reality till the end of 93 when we realized certain names of doctors, Dr. Ferrari, Dr. Ciccini, Dr. Coney were working with cycling teams. And then the joke was this Dr. Ferrari, who is a 
infamous dopey doctor, he was getting a percentage of riders' salaries. And we said, well, he's because he was a bike rider too. And I don't know if he raced, but he was the highest paid rider in the Peloton, is what we joked. And he was because he was training and doping two or three dozen riders that were dominating the field. So he was making a lot of money at it. Well, one of those riders is a, a fellow that every one of our listeners knows well and, and uh, wore a little yellow band to, to back him up, Lance Armstrong. There's a quote that you shared where you talked about when Lance won his 99 Tour de France, you wept in tears. Like you were just overwhelmed, yep, yep. grateful, a fellow American and a guy you liked and respected. And then you found out he was working with Dr. Ferrari and you had tears, different types of tears, because you recognized what was really going on here. Why was it important for you to uh, tell that story publicly to make sure well, others recognize? To be honest, to be honest, my mom and dad taught me if you don't have something positive about something to say about something, don't say anything at all. The irony is, even in 1999, people came to me with stories about what was happening, and I didn't believe it. And then 2000, more stories, but no, it's 2000. 2000 was the Detroit France. And um, Armstrong's mechanic, Julian DeVries, with my mechanic, he hired my mechanic, told us about a payoff. He told us what was happening in the sport. And I I stopped watching the sport. I adhered to my mom's saying, if they don't have anything positive to say about Lance Armstrong, better not say it at all. And and I, in fact, that year, once I learned all this stuff, um, I was supposed to be at the Tour de France stage the next day. And I decided not to go because I didn't. I was always asked about Armstrong's performance and I was always positive. I, I admired him for coming back. I had a setback coming back from cancer and I decided I didn't want to say anything. I was, it was going to be probably suicidal for me because he had such a following. I decided not to say anything. And, but then Do David Walsh was doing an investigation and he revealed that he was working with F Ferrari. And, and the truth is it was Ferrari and the doctors that I, I really objected to because writers at one point, I was fortunate that drugs weren't, they were, I've learned a lot since I stopped cycling. There were riders always trying to take something. They always believed that somebody else has taken something, but there was nothing at the, in the 80s that was physically improving the performance. Placebo at most, most of the drugs that were used were cortisone, which was removed inflammation, helped kind of convert energy. Obviously it didn't impact me because I still won the tour. Once EPO came in, it was oxygen. Everything in aerobics is about carrying more oxygen. I'm glad I never had to face that deal where I turned pro with the passion I had in the 90s where you couldn't compete without it. So there's part of that. I have empathy for the riders. And I've always, I've tried to propose to, I always believe that plea bargaining and, and giving riders the benefit of the doubt. The problem has always been the culture of the teams and, and riders are victims of the pressure for the teams and the doctors. But and they're very vulnerable. The difference in Armstrong is th there was a massive drug bust in 1998 that literally almost destroyed the sport called the Festina Affair. And I really believed in a story. Then I heard this and I decided, you know, that, that 2000 Tour de France stage, I said, I can't go there. I don't want to say something. I, I got to be honest myself. And I, I can't compliment him because of what I know. And I came up with this deal. I just said, well, when somebody did get a hold of me, I said, well, his victory that year was unbelievable. And it's, you could, it sounds, you could use that two ways. It's an unbelievable victory or it's not believable. And that's yes. that was true to myself. But honestly, the next year, I, I was still hesitant. And I, David Walsh wanted to talk to me because I had, I just texted him. I said, you're in the right direction because I knew he was with Ferrari. I already knew that prior to the investigation. And my goal was, I, 
really, I, I couldn't be part of the sport if there was massive doping. And the irony is I went to England that July, right after the tour to meet with Conoco, which is a, a, a big oil company that wanted to get into cycling. And at the time, I think budgets were up $10 million. And it was a, a, a journalist out of England that uh, organized this. And, and I was incentivized. I could have taken 10 or 20% off the top of a $10 million sponsor. That would have been, I could have made one to $2 million a year for three years straight, representing the team, helping put the team together. At the end of the third day of meetings, I said, can you win the Tour de France without drugs? And I said, no, not today. And I said, I can't be part of it. Eventually, a week or two later, they passed in cycling. But the next day, I flew in from the UK. And when I got off the plane, I got a call from Lance Armstrong. And he called me because the quote I said, David Walsh, he asked me, well, it was kind of like I, I tried to limit it to one comment. He said, you know, Greg, if he's clean, it's the greatest comeback in the history of sports. And I, would you agree? And I said, yes. And if he's not, I said, well, it'd be the greatest fraud. And I say the greatest fraud because he utilized, he used the cancer, his cancer as a defense that he was clean. He mocked other riders. He, he was really a, a very selfish, narcissistic rider. And I hate bullies, but at the same time, I, I did not want to go on record supporting him because I couldn't. And so I agreed to that comment, but that came out and boy, it just blew things up. And I it said, Armstrong calls me the day I land from London. And he said, why did you call me a fraud? And I said, well, I didn't. <laughs> he just admitted right there that he's taking drugs. So, because had he been clean, he said, thank you, Greg, for the compliment. You know, I agree. You know, I think I am one of the best, greatest comebacks in the history sort because I'm clean. But he didn't say that. He said that, why did you call me a fraud? And I, that's when we got into this kind of tit for tat. And he basically threatened that he'd find people that said I took EPO. And so that started a kind of a, a, a quiet, silent war. He tried to have every business I uh, had, had at the time and continued to be involved in my life all the way through the last decade. It was just very difficult. I mean, sometimes I go, was it worth it? I don't know. I, and I, I was going to ask you that. You, you, lost, <laughs> you lost friends. You lost respect. You lost yep. credibility. Psychologic impact to me, yeah. So uh, looking back on you being honest on the front side and then throughout that run, was it worth what you went through? If I could go back right now, I'd say no. I, I wouldn't be, be if I look at the toll it's taken on me and my family and everything. But at the time, I don't think I would have had it changed. I would have to look at the future to understand the cost, to understand what I would say. I never believed that somebody doing such egregious stuff, paying off governing bodies uh, after positive... If I know about it, I'm not even the sport. If I'm getting told about it, it's going to come out. He's going to go down. But what I underestimated was the power of his story and the politics, political power he got. He shut people down, threatened people. And so I never thought it would last this long. But once you went against him, you went against his team, boy, they just attacked you. Yes. I think he was a precursor of what's happened in politics in terms of, you know, they did a really great, PR job with me. Um, imagine I had maybe two interviews, one with David Walsh and one in 2004 with Lamone, that I'm a whiner that I kept complaining. And I kept whining. That's what the story was. I, I never talked to anybody. But they, they created a great PR campaign against me to make it seem like I'm a jealous person. I am 
absolutely not a jealous person. But what I have to say is I came in with a different history of the average rider. I came from being cut short of, of my career because of drugs. I had two friends, not just Johannes Driver, another rider on my French team who left our team in 93 to, to race an Italian team in 94, told me what was happening in that team, EPO, everything. He died of a heart attack. So I had a different perspective of what was happening right. that I couldn't tolerate. And what was the drugs were keeping me out of the sport I loved. I couldn't be actually a participant in the sport because I couldn't go along with what was happening. So it took a little bit out of me. But the crazy thing is people came to me with more information about arms. I never sought any information. I wasn't seeking stuff. People felt compelled to call me and tell me what's happening. And it goes from Betsy Andreo to Julian DeVries to um, multiple people. And once you get that information, it's almost hard to block it out. So I had a choice of appeasing him, going along with it and complimenting him. But I, I, I try to do the least amount of, of protests. I, I don't know if I look back, I don't know if it was worth it. I mean, it, it's, but I don't know if I could have done it any differently. That's what I'm saying. It's like, was it worth the cost? Maybe not. But at the time, I don't think I could have been different. Once I find somebody's dishonest with me in business or anything, it's over. I don't trust people anymore. And I have, it's, I paid a big price for it sometimes, but you, you, it's even mightier than what we've talked about because it, it became very personal, uh, digging up your history, your family, business. Like it, it affected you in every area of life. And yet ultimately you were no, proved. They, and, and the public hasn't even heard half you to say yeah. that. It's like, <laughs> what's happened with that whole story. But some of the stuff involves family that, that would be, anyways, It's it's been a crazy journey. But at the end of the day, I'm not happy that he lost his tours. I would have loved, I mean, for the sport of cycling, for my business and everything, I'd have loved to have Lance Armstrong to be authentic and winning the tour and Floyd Landis. And the more Americans we had competing, doing well, the better it is for the sport. I think the sport's magical, but at least there was accountability. And I think that's really important for, for the sport. And there's sports are always kind of pushing the limit, but if there's no accountability, it's a free for all. And nobody wants their kids to go into sport where there are no rules, where everything's a free-for-all, where nobody's looking at their health. It, it, you're be and riders, tr truly the riders are like lab rats in a way at the time. I mean, the stuff that the public doesn't know about, these guys suffer from depression because they were given antidepressants, they were given any type of drug that, you know, and you got a doctor and a team saying, oh, this is good for you, this is good for you. So they're also, I call them compliant victims. And I, I'm not... There's not even a rider. I mean, I know riders that I think have cut my right, uh, career short, but I don't have the same. Some of these guys were innocent victims right. and, and compliant victims. But Armstrong was a, just a different animal, and he had a he had to really deal with me. He was, I mean, he hired my he hired my mechanic. He went to every sponsor I had. He was obsessed with me, and I think when I went against him, it just threw him into a, a you know a rage. He didn't did not like it. Well, speaking of not liking it, many of our listeners are not liking something that they're dealing with in their life. They feel like they're climbing and their legs are burning and they're by themselves and the, the Peloton has left them far behind. So as we get ready to wrap up our conversation today and, and move back into the race of life, what, what's your encouragement for someone who is just struggling right now in some facet of their journey? 
it's a hard one because everybody's story is so different. And I go, I think I could be facing some of the biggest challenges I have in the next couple of years. I just know that health wise and other stuff, but I think having my wife has been critical because you need uh, a witness to your struggles. You need to have, be able to talk to people about it. And, and I call perseverance. It sounds like a cliche, but knowing that I do think no matter how bad it gets, it's not going to last forever and that it will get better. And if you could think that way, it makes suffering and going through bad periods more tolerable. If you think it's never going to end, it's, it could be very, very just depressing. And I hate to be kind of like this guy on a pedestal because I'm not, I mean, but I have suffered physically, medically setbacks and everybody's got their own way to motivate themselves. And I sometimes don't know how I've not cracked because of, of some of the stress, but I just know that I'm, like I said, I'm very open. I know that being able to talk to people, talk about some of the struggles is really important, but I always know that I'm a fairly optimistic person, although sometimes I could be not. My goal is always to find happiness. No matter where that, I have to readjust. If I lost everything, I know that ultimately I'll get, I'll get to a place of peace and happiness <laughs> if I don't give up. One of the, my strengths is I don't give up and I'm, I, I don't know, but most people don't. The good thing is most people don't give up you know. Greg Lamond, it's been a delight having you on this dual bike with me for the last hour or so. And we are in the final sprint, my friend. We call them the seven questions. Live Inspired Seven, they tether all of our guests together. So I get in the, the, the best, most aerodynamic position because we're going to race to the finish line. Question number one is what's been the most influential book, most inspirational book you've ever read? My gosh, don't even ask me that. I read books. I can't ever remember the authors. Let's just say my favorite is Undaunted Courage from a pure story of I love the American West. So that's my favorite book. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little kid growing up in the Nevada Sierra Mountains that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I was a curious kid, the wonder of life. I was always, always excited to explore new things. Like like that dog, I'm sure that puppy likes to explore new things. If if your home caught fire and that dog and your family and your wife are all out safe and you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item, what's the one thing you would grab? Well, thank goodness all my photos are digital now. <laughs> so um, probably sentimental stuff, maybe the some of my Tour de France like jerseys and trophies. Yeah, that would be it. Everything else is, you can't replace that. I can buy whatever furniture and all that. But yeah, my Tour de France, yellow jersey and, tro and trophies. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be next to? George Washington. What's the best advice Washington, your parents, Kathy, or anybody else ever gave you? Best advice. Oh my gosh. Well, professionally, race is never over till the end of the race. It's it's got me cut world championships in the Tour de France. I think that's true in life too. And you know, you and I talked offline about business and family, and it's not over till it's over. So it's, pedal. Put your head down and pedal. That's right. What what would you tell your 20-year-old self? This uh this hot shot now living over in Europe doing his thing. What would you if you could whisper a little bit of wisdom into your into your ear at age 20, what would you say? I would say probably be a little more selfish. <laughs> I think I've, I'm a very open person. I think 
people think I'm naive and they take try to take advantage. Sometimes I've let that happen, but I just say before I got shot, I was a different person. After that, I found myself more emotional, but more forgiving, more trying to be understanding. But at the same time, there are people that will take advantage of that. It's one thing I could kick myself of going, okay, why did I get, why did this guy take advantage? I already had a gut feeling from it. It's, that's probably one thing I could look at over a lifetime of, of having better boundaries, let's say, having better boundaries. Greg Lamond, my friend, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? I was a compassionate, caring person that lived my life honestly, ethically, and did things right. Mm. I believe well, that. To be the I know your, your old coach Otto called you champ all the time. So champ, yes. I, I, I appreciate you, man. I appreciate you doing it the right way. And you leaving behind a legacy of impact. You're a great champion. And we appreciate you spending this time with us on Live Inspired. John, thank you. This has really been a great interview. Probably one of the best I've had, really. My friends, that is Greg Lamond. My name is John O'Leary. And today is your day. What a gift. Live Inspired. Well, my friends, I told you on the front side that the conversation with Greg was going to be deeply motivating, encouraging, and inspiring, whether you were a cyclist enthusiast or just a human being. With the Tour de France starting this weekend, though, what an honor it was to share that time with three-time winner and the sole American to achieve that feat, Greg Lamont. The biggest takeaway from today's conversation is Greg's unwavering commitment of doing what is right, even when it is unpopular, even when it may cause you status and wealth and popularity. In exposing the truth and in holding individuals accountable, Greg risked damaging his own reputation. He lost sponsorships. He jeopardized future opportunities within the sport and beyond. And yet in doing so, he contributed to paving the way for a more level playing field that serves as a beacon of integrity within the sport of cycling. If you enjoyed today's conversation and you're looking to pedal into another Live Inspired podcast, don't miss my conversation with legendary multifaceted entertainer and former Tour de France announcer, John Tesh. With more than 45 years as an internationally recognized journalist, composer, broadcaster, and concert pianist, John's story of courage, resiliency, relentlessness, faithfulness, achieving, and humility will leave you inspired. I'm telling you, it's a great conversation. Check it out right now, the John Tesh Conversation with John O'Leary at episode number 244. And if you struggle finding it there, just let your fingers do the cycling right now. Join me on my website at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. And I'll have a link for you for that interview in the show notes of this one. So my friends, I want to thank you for being along for the ride this time and for being part of our Live Inspired podcast community all the time. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary and today is your day. What a gift. Live Inspired.
Kelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at keelycompanies.com.